This week on BSD Now, we have an interview with Richard Yao, who's going to be telling us about the experience and challenges of porting ZFS to Linux. That plus the latest news and feedback is coming your way on The Place to Be, SD. Now, episode 157, ZFS, the Universal File System, recorded August 31st, 2016. Hey, I'm your host, Chris Moore. And I'm Alan Jude. Glad to have you with us this week. We got another exciting show. You're going to want to stick around for our interview. We'll be talking about all kinds of ZFS stuff, but uh, we got lots of news to get into, so we're going to jump right into it. Mm. And uh, leading us off this week is uh, MeetBSD. The registration is now open for that. So tell us what's special about this year's MeetBSD. Yes, uh, so... Meet BST 2016, and it's uh, Beasties Coming Home. Uh, this will be Meet BST will actually be hosted at uh, U- uh, University of California at Berkeley at the uh, Clark Care campus. Uh, so uh, Meet BST will be back at the place where BST actually started. You know, nice. uh, the, the B in BSD is for Berkeley. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So that's like salmon returning to the spawning place. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so that's November 11th and 12th. Uh, at uh, the campus there, although uh, it will be preceded by two days of FreeBSD Vendor and Dev Summit. Uh, mm. So, you know, yeah, like we said, you can get invited to that if, if you want. Uh, but, um, yeah, so that's uh, the Friday and Saturday, November 11th and 12th, uh, and it should be a lot of fun. So mm-hmm. uh, just a couple excerpts here. Uh, MeetBSD can be, uh, traces its origins back to its humble roots as a local workshop for BSD developers and users, hosted annually in Poland starting in 2014. Uh, since then, MeetBSD's popularity has spread and is now uh, widely recognized as own conference with participants from all over the world. Uh, for a while there, it actually switched off back and forth, uh, where on... Even years it was in California and odd years it was in Poland. Although I think that stopped when they had a EuroBSD con in Poland and and, yeah. and Pavel's been pretty busy since then. Uh, but yeah. So now, yeah, now they switch off with the VBSD con yeah. instead. So uh, the US version is run every two years since uh, in California since 2008. And now on the odd years, we have uh, VBSD con on the East Coast so that we have an East Coast and a West Coast uh, conference once every other year. Uh, What's also interesting about MeetBSD compared to something like BSDCAN or uh, EuroBSDCon or even HBSDCon is it's a mixed unconference, uh, which means while there are a couple of scheduled talks, there's a lot of community-driven events such as uh, Birds of a Feather meetings, which are really nice. It's just you know, hey, everybody who wants to talk about ZFS will go sit in this room. And uh, I think at VBSDCon when we did it, I mostly just answered questions the whole time. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, you can. It's really nice to be able to get a group of people that are all interested in the same topic and just have a conversation. Uh, sure. And you know that's that's how Beehive came into existence at a previous Meet BSD. Mm-hmm. Uh, is they were trying to decide what topics to talk about, and it turned out everybody wanted to talk about virtualization. And then uh, two years later, at the next Meet BSD, it's like, oh, look what we made—a virtual Beehive. Yeah, yeah. Beehive is now a thing. Yeah. Uh, but they have lightning talks, which are just nice short talks, so you don't have to talk to 45 minutes. You just five or so minutes about a topic, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, some hackable presentations and more interactive type stuff. Uh, Stump the Chump, uh, which is pretty interesting. But uh, speed geeking. This one's really cool. Uh, you take 
the the group of attendees and break them up into small groups, usually about 10 groups. So, you know, if there's 200 people and you break them into 10 groups, then that's a nice small number. Um, Mm -hmm. And then those people kind of migrate uh, to each station where somebody's giving a short, basically a lightning talk, a five or so minute presentation. But, but, because you're in a much smaller group, you get to be more interactive with the speaker and, and talk to them about what they're actually working on. And then you rotate and you get all 10 different stations over the course of basically about two hours. Uh, and so instead of the kind of lecture style where you're kind of falling asleep or whatever, it's much more interactive. Uh, it is also interesting as the speaker for that because you're going to give the same the talk 10 times. By the 10th mm-hmm. time, how much better is your talk? <laughs> Right. Well, I started to have to change, have to change it up, you know, because yep. I'd forget and I'd remember certain things. Oh, yeah, I should talk about this this time. Yep. But no, I won't. Yeah, yeah. So everybody got a little different. Yeah, or, different or you know, right. uh, seeing how, which part you talk about, generate what type of questions mm-hmm. and, and try to, so that next time you have to give this as a, a big, full 45-minute talk, you know the right points to hit. It's quite That's interesting. Right. Uh, and uh, they'll announce the speakers for the, the fixed slots um, eventually. <laughs> Uh, but registration is open now, and if you register before September 30th, uh, then you get $30 off the price. Uh, so you should probably do that. It also just helps them a lot to know how big of rooms they need sure. and how many T-shirts and so on. So the sooner you register, the better. Uh, and mm-hmm. then you'll be there, right? Just, yep, I will be uh, there for Chris sure. Chris and I will both be there, along with uh, lots of other FreeBSD developers, uh, vendors, so people that actually use companies that use FreeBSD in their products. Uh, MeetBSD is always really big with them because it's in their backyard. And there's lots of users. So uh, what's really nice about the unconference style is you get this good mingling of the developers and the users and getting them talking mm-hmm. to each other, uh, especially like, for example, those speaking sessions, uh, the developers just hearing what questions users have and getting to talk about them uh, can really kind of bridge that gap between what you're building and, and how people are using it. Uh, and a lot of really sure. useful uh, changes have came out of that getting developers and users talking. So I really recommend that users come out to this conference too uh, mm-hmm. because it's really a good conference for that. Definitely uh, it is. I think I'm, I'm all booked or I'm just about to be booked going out there on the 8th and coming back on the 13th. Yeah, so I'll I just, be there for the whole dev summit. Yep. I just booked yeah. all my stuff last night. Uh, same thing. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, excellent. Well, if you can make it out to that, do come out. Mm-hmm. Um, me and Alan would love to see you and uh, come say hi. And uh, definitely a good conference. Don't Just, mess it, especially if you're already in California yeah. and you work in Silicon Valley. You have no excuse. excuse for missing this. Yeah, you, you could. Just take a couple days and come on down. Yeah. Okay, so next up. So you're looking to uh, install FreeBSD alongside Windows 10? Well, what happens if that system's already pre-installed? Maybe it has UEFI. Well, of course, you could run something like TrueOS, but maybe that isn't your bag. You want vanilla FreeBSD. If so, we have you covered this week. We have uh, over on Kevin Bowling's blog, we have a detailed article showing exactly how you would do that. So uh, he kind of walks you through the process, but first up, and this is an important one, make sure you go into the Windows Disk Manager and shrink your existing NTFS partition. Yep. FreeBSD is not going to do that for you. So just do a little planning ahead of time, shrink it, give it as much space as you're going to want for your new uh, BSD install. So next up, you're going to want to go ahead and boot a FreeBSD 11 or later. And then from there, the walkthrough takes you through doing all the disk partitioning using Gpart, um, setting up a ZFS into a boot environment friendly layout. Man, this looks so familiar every time I look at this. Yep. It's like I've done this so many times now. <laughs> but uh, once you get through the typical FreeBSD setup and extraction, this tutorial gives us a nice little bonus showing how you can set up a refine for a graphical boot menu. That's actually something I don't do yet. I, uh, I should try that. That uh, looks a lot nicer. I always use 
the BIOS options and just say... Well, so I, I had done that for a long time on my laptop because I had a, a hard drive with Windows and an SSD with BSD, mm -hmm. but then I shrunk the partitions on both. Uh, well, sorry, even on the SSD. Originally, I split the SSD in half because I wanted some of it for storage for recording videos on the laptop mm -hmm. from interviews. So that was set up as NTFS, and the other half was ZFS. And then eventually, I shrunk my Windows partition and I had a third... OS, an actual second copy of FreeBSD that booted EFI to help test the EFI sure. changes. But now I don't need that. So I threw that away and actually I have a ZFS mirror with half of it on the SSD and half of it on the, the hard oh, drive. Nice. Now, you know, I'm not after speed. I'm after I don't want my laptop data to go mm -hmm. away. Uh, yeah, when you accidentally drop it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I've basically done same and I used Refind uh, to let me do that. So uh, I was using the BIOS menu because I was still booting not EFI because I had ZFS. Mm -hmm. So I was booting BIOS off the SSD for BSD and EFI off the hard drive for Windows. But then when I put the second FreeBSD on the Windows drive, I used Refind, and uh, it was not, not that hard to set up. Yeah, it doesn't look bad. It's a pretty easy configuration file. You just kind of define your OSs, yeah. and you get a nice graphical menu. I'm gonna, I think I'm going to switch my laptop over to doing that. It just looks prettier. Mm -hmm. and I always have to remember to hit F12 right now, which is annoying. But uh, definitely a good setup. It's a great walkthrough, and hopefully this encourages others to try out dual-booting EFI style, which is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So if you've never done this before... Well, uh, the big thing is it's easier. Yeah. Uh, it the, is. the, because you have this EFI partition where you just put each different bootloader in a directory and then use Refine to pick between them, it means you don't have this problem of, oh, I installed OS and it clobbered the other one. Mm -hmm. That's actually how we recommend in TrueOS doing a dual boot with Windows 10 right now, is if you have Windows 10 installed with EFI, all you have to do is shrink the partition, point the installer at the free space, and it just does the rest, because yep. it doesn't have to go through and change any of the partitioning um, that might interfere with Windows. Yep. It just splats our EFI loader right into the existing partition and done. Yep. So it's quite nice. Okay, well, let's move on here. So we have next up uh, ZFS as a high-availability NAS. So are you maybe interested in a do-it-yourself uh, high-availability ZFS NAS? Well, uh, Edmund White, or EWW White on GitHub, has posted a very detailed look at how he custom-rolled his own Linux plus ZFS plus HA setup. So uh, what's interesting about this uh, particular uh, wiki slash article, I guess maybe more of a tutorial, it's a lot of everything that he wrote here. But uh, most of the concepts being used there are already used in various other HA products. So it's not necessarily uh, new ideas here, but it's interesting and informative to see a really public, detailed look at how ZFS with HA works, mm -hmm. especially in kind of an open source environment. So in particular, this setup does require some very specific hardware, so don't just cobble together a bunch of old P4s and hope it's going to work. Yeah. You'll need disks with dual-port SAS drives and uh, some other uh, various gear, and he'll lay, up, lay all that out in the blog article if you want to take a look at it. So uh, pre-plan accordingly if you're going to try and do something. Now, the only bummer for us in BSD world is this is a very detailed ZFS on Linux setup, but I'm hoping maybe this serves as inspiration or a guide for somebody else in the community to write their own uh, free BSD plus HA. ZFS setup and then blog about it in some more detail because I think he did a lot of the work here and I think a lot of these ideas we have analogs for and you could yeah. do it just as easily on FreeBSD. Most of this is it would be exactly the same as ever, instead of multipath D it's G multipath on FreeBSD mm -hmm. and right. you don't need a, an actual config file for it on FreeBSD you actually just label the drives and it works magically it does its thing uh but yeah it's pretty it, this is what's really neat about this one is it's really detailed like he gives you mm -hmm. all the stuff you need to, to do this on your own yeah so i think it was a pretty expensive system when he had all the drives and it still was like thirteen thousand right or something to um, it was not cheap so uh, i i don't have anywhere the drives are actually separate 
Uh, I have a couple setups where I, I have dual ported SAS and multiple controllers. It's just the discs live in the chassis with the machine. And I, sure. it basically, my setups aren't dual head. Uh, but um, there's quite a bit of interest in this. Uh, other stuff from that's Linux specific is like obviously the Sys class enclosure. Uh, on FreeBSD, we have SysUtil to let you get that same information to see what's plugged into what. Uh, so yeah, it it wouldn't be much work to translate most of this into FreeBSD specific, and mm -hmm. uh, I think people will find quite a bit of value in that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. So like I said, maybe it'll encourage somebody to do that, and we'll mm -hmm. of course talk about that if it shows up. But the ZFS stuff is all pretty similar. Uh, I'm trying to think. Pacemaker might be something you'll have to find a FreeBSD analog for. Yeah, I, know but, uh, I think with our fencing. like CTLD HA stuff that uh, Alexander mm -hmm. Moten did, you'd be able to do quite a bit of this with it yeah. as well. Yeah, but definitely good stuff. Mm. Okay, so let's move on. So we got something new to talk about yes. here. So we have the first public release of Chives version 0.1.0. So, of course, as Beehive continues to mature, we're starting to see a lot of tooling start to evolve around it. And that pretty much gives us uh, what we have today, which is Chives that started off life as a fork of IOHive. And actually, we're looking to do an interview with the author here in the near future. Yes. But we still want to bring you some of the new features and changes in this evolution of Beehive management. And we'll get into it in more detail with him when we talk to him. But uh, first up, just going to let you know, he says nearly every function from IOHive has either been rewritten in part or in full. So it sounds like quite an overhaul. Um, among some of the new features and the notables, he has a new full logging system, which is still in beta. So he's asking for people to try it out and report issues. But it has a master log of things that have been done and then per VM logs as well. So you can look and see what's changed at a specific uh, VM level. Um, support for multiple zpool configurations. Um, something interesting is he's switched to using properties stored outside of ZFS for speed. He might yep. be using maybe UCL again or something. I'm not sure internally. But I know like IOCage experimented with the same thing. Um, and self-upgrading as well. So you can uh, upgrade your version of Chives. I'm not sure how that'll work with a packaged version. You might have to right. disable that or not use it in that case. But uh, still, it's neat to have that. So you can start playing with it and pulling the latest development uh, stuff right now. In addition to the above features, though, the website's actually quite nice. It has a really large chart down near the bottom showing all the original IOHive commands and then how that usage has changed when you move to Chive. So if you're already used to IOHive and doing things a certain way, he has the analog of that um, on the right side there. So you can see how you would do the equivalent in Chive. So pretty mm -hmm. cool, pretty cool. Um, of course, give it a spin. Let the author know of issues. Maybe we can kind of beta test and beat this up a little bit for him before we do the interview and uh, mm -hmm. get some feedback in the community. And hopefully this continues to evolve and grow. It looks, like, it looks pretty promising. Yeah. Uh, he also has a bunch of demo videos of uh, using Chives to boot up you know, uh, Debian and OpenBSD and a bunch of other OSs. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely designed around some of the latest stuff, which has landed in Beehive, such as the UEFI GOP support. So VNC, all those things are now first-class citizens because mm -hmm. it was designed around the time those things landed. So uh, definitely a good way to give it a whirl. I'm going to have to try it out here in the next couple of weeks when I get a little free time because I may be interested in doing a front end for that. Mm -hmm. It sounds like fun. So we'll give it a spin. And, of course, stay tuned for a future episode where we get to talk to the author. But our first, uh, our first uh, sponsor this week is just going to be DigitalOcean. Of course, the website for that is DigitalOcean.com, where you'll want to go and get signed up right now. You can create an account. That's really easy to do. It'll only take a few minutes. Confirm your email, all that jazz. But after you've done that, don't forget to use the free, uh, coupon code FREEBSDNOW, which will give you the $10 credit, which is good for running pretty much two months of a VM, which is pretty stinking cool, especially because that VM is still backed by an SSD. And you can pick the location and data centers all over the world. So you can find something close to you or far away, depending on what uh, particular use case you have for it. 
But of course, uh, DigitalOcean makes this all super simple. They have a beautiful website, great HTML5 based console. So everything is pretty convenient. And of course, uh, what I like, programmatic APIs. Mm-hmm. You can spin these up and tear them down uh, restfully if you would like. It makes uh, scripting pretty easy. Um, anything you want to throw in there, Alan? Uh, well, they have the new ZFS support and the new oh, separate yes. block storage. So, mm-hmm. you know, while the, the $5 VM comes with 20 gigs of SSD storage or the $20 one with 40 gigs, if you actually want bulk storage because you're going to store stuff online, like if you're going to set up your uh, an online backup or something, then sure. uh, you can actually buy storage, just buy the gigabyte per hour yeah. uh, from their block storage thing and then set that up uh, and, uh, you know, that's nice. You don't have to change your operating system pool or anything. You can just point it at the new storage and go. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm just thinking, it's like, all right, so I get a cheap VM and attach a bunch of storage with ZFS, and then I can just ZFS replicate from my house to my DigitalOcean mm-hmm. VM, and I can encrypt it if I want, and then I'm all set. Uh, right. And with the HTML5 cool. console, you can actually do full disk encryption on your VM because you have access to the console to actually type in the passphrase when it boots up, mm-hmm. uh, whereas with you know most remote VPSs, you don't really get that ability. Yeah, yeah, this is definitely really nice. So, uh, of course, uh, go ahead and get signed up today. If you have any questions or problems, let them know. Mm -hmm. But tell them you heard about it here on BSD Now. I know we would appreciate that. Okay, we're joined today by Richard Yao, who's a senior kernel engineer at Cluster HQ and also a major contributor to ZFS on Linux. So, first of all, thank you for uh, taking some time to be on the show with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Chris. Well, cool. Well, the first question we have to ask you, because you've not been on the show before, is how did you first get introduced to Unix? What was the, the story that led you to a Unix operating system? Uh, that depends on whether or not you go by the by the Dennis Ritchie definition or the uh, single Unix specification definition. <laughs> so, We'll say Unix-like for just... Yeah, okay, so <laughs> I think... There are a few things I'm tempted to say is the first time... Uh, I'm tempted to just say uh, Jurassic Park, would, it's a Unix system, but no, it wasn't that far right. back. <laughs> I, I remember when I was 10, it was November 13, 1999, and I wanted to make a Pokemon website, so I did. And then a few years later, I think like two years later, I actually decided to start doing things with LAMP, with PHP, MySQL. I got rid of the what you see is what you get editor and started doing everything by myself. I had some guidance from Christopher Dickinson Fritz, who was, I think, Meowth346. Mm-hmm. He ran his own Pokemon site, and he gave me some advice which helped me to run PHP and MySQL. So I did that. Then when I went to college at Stony Brook, I actually did uh, some stuff on Solaris, as they actually had a Solaris 9 system back in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then in... 2009, I decided to try Gen 2. In 2010, I actually switched from Windows 7 to Gen 2. Okay. Cool. So it's been a while. That's cool. Yeah. Yes. So uh, what are some of the things that you've worked on that people might have heard of? Gen 2. Uh, then there's Gen Kernel, which is Gen 2's Net RamFS software. I guess I'm somewhat... I, well, I co-founded a somewhat notorious EU dev project. And I have patches in BVI. I have a patch in Battle for West North. I also have a patch in this little-known project called FreeBSD. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, i got to ask you about that then. So first of all, what kind of stuff did you do on Gentoo, and then what did you do on FreeBSD? In Gentoo, 
I did a lot of stuff involving ZFS integration, uh, and I actually, basically anything where it annoyed me, I just tried to get things fixed. Mm -hmm. I also worked on the init RAMFS generator quite a bit. I'm one of the developers for that. I, ha I actually have commit privileges for that, which not everyone has. Sure. And then, you know, as I said, I co-founded EU Dev, although I kind of stepped away from the project at the time. It Hurricane Sandy had just hit, so things were a bit hectic here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So those are some of the things I've done in Gen 2. Um, I did do some work on Gen 2 FreeBSD, but I kind of stepped away from that to just focus on ZFS. Sure, sure. Okay. Oh, and maybe I should just mention this. Gen 2 FreeBSD, despite what everyone says, it's not a clone of Debian K FreeBSD. There is no GNU user land. It's the FreeBSD user space. Okay. And Gen 2 FreeBSD came first. Nice. Everyone <laughs> seems to think it's the reverse. Sure. It's weird. Yes, yeah, setting the record straight. So exactly. Uh, so you work on the ZFS on Linux project. How did you first get involved in that? Well, I was actually doing things... Uh, in terms of Windows Media Center in my home, I set up a dedicated system for that. The hard drive failed, and this was actually just for data, but the operating system wouldn't start up. And after that, I was convinced, okay, Windows cannot be trusted with actual hardware. Let me virtualize it on Linux. I tried doing MD RAID 6, LVM, EXT4, performance was terrible. I got only 20 megabytes per second out of six disks. Then I tried ZFS on Linux, as I had heard about it and recently, like a year prior, gotten support for data sets, although all I really needed were ZVOLs at the time. Mm -hmm. And it, it just mopped the floor with MD RAID, LVM, and EXT4. Sure. Instead of getting 20 megabytes per second, it was doing 200. And nice. there were some bugs. I was like, oh, I can fix these. So I worked on it. I'm still working on it, by the way. Mm -hmm. But the, the bugs that, annoy, that I was like, oh, I can fix these, I fixed them already. So those are all resolved. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. So I guess that begs the question then, how much work are you actually doing on it today? Are you, is it mostly just porting the code and then keeping up with upstream open ZFS? Or are you guys actually doing like new development on ZFS on Linux directly? So just in terms of the overall project at the moment, there is a mix of both. I guess you could say it's 50-50. Mm -hmm. I haven't looked too much at it to figure out the exact split, but there are things that are being ported from Arunos. There are fixes being made for Linux compatibility. There have been a ton of fixes being been, that have been done for Linux compatibility. And there are new things under development, like ZFS Crypto, ABD, which stands for Arc Data Buffer. It replaces the slab-backed CIO buffers with lists of pages, which makes it much, much more efficient under memory pressure. Mm -hmm. And then there are also stable API improvements that I've been working on at CrossTradeSQ. It's been a bit of an on-off priority thing, but I'm making a push for that right now to get that merged mm -hmm. into OpenDFS and not just Linux. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so how do you use ZFS at your day job? <laughs> so my laptop uses ZFS as a root file system. In fact, I think just about all of my systems have ZFS as a root file system 
Uh, once you well, go ZFS, you don't go back. Yeah, I would say both <laughs> yes. of us are definitely the same way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I haven't used UFS in five years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but in terms of actual work, I have actually been building stuff that goes on top of ZFS. That way we can, well, that way Crustreads Q can ship something known as Volume Hub and a few other things that have been announced. And that's what I've been focusing on in terms of ZFS. The API is one part of that. And there's another thing where, okay, so if you work for a startup, you've probably had a situation where you hear the investors want uh, more IP and you're like, well, it's going to be open source under a license that gives you a, a pat- gives everyone a patent grant anyway. So why don't I just point out, oh, this can be patented. So yeah, I, I, I did that. And then I was told, okay, until it's patented, don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, oh. Whoops. <laughs> but anyway, I can talk a little bit about it, uh, just not in too much detail. Sure. So things in, uh, for Volume Hub in terms of sending and receiving, I've actually been doing some work on that on top of ZFS. Uh, as I said, I can't go into the details until right. it's public. Mm-hmm. But the code, as far as I know, and honestly, I can't promise it, but I wouldn't be working on it if I thought it wouldn't be. It should be open source so people will be able to see it and use it and everyone will be able to benefit from it, assuming that our variant of on send receive is actually something that people want. It's not there are trade-offs with any sort of send receive solution. Sure. Okay. Well yeah, we'll we'll have to keep an eye out for that. And when that <laughs> drops or lands, you make sure you let us know so we can cover it on <laughs> BSC now and make some noise about it for mm-hmm. you. Uh, thanks. Mm-hmm. So um, you work with a FreeBSD and ZFS committer, I guess AVG at uh, FreeBSD uh, works with you at your day job. So yes, how is Andre. That? Yeah. So how is working with Andre different than working with the Linux community? Any differences you see in how the communities work? It's not that different, actually, as I, both Andre and I work remotely. So in terms of being in contact, doing reviews when we need them, it's just like working with the Linux community. I haven't really seen many differences Okay. Cool. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that you have a couple of contributions to FreeBSD. You want to tell us about those? Well, I wouldn't say a couple because I can only remember one off the top of my head. Okay. Well, there was but two when we one. talked earlier in the week. Yes. So <laughs> I recall when I was still trying to hack on Gen 2 FreeBSD, something I heard about that was affecting FreeBSD users was there was this... I think it was a SATA or SCSI, probably SATA driver that was overzealously attaching to things that it didn't support, which would mess up the storage stack. As you'd have the generic driver, and in this driver that would be like, I can, I'll try to attach to this even though I did not saw if I, I can work with it. So there was some docu- not documentation, so was, but some remarks online saying just change this flag for the kernel module. So I just wrote a small one-line patch changing the default to say, don't try to overzealously attach. I gave it to Ethan Alder who committed it for me. And I think there probably is one other patch, but I don't remember where it is on the, off the top of my head. And I, it wasn't very well attributed to me either, which was a bit of a shame, but I, I didn't really mind that much. Yeah, I see uh, quite a f- your name appears in the commit log quite a few times, which is mostly just... Uh pulling in ZFS contributions and so on. Hey, that's that's mm-hmm. a start, man. We're exactly. going to suck you in eventually. It's <laughs> <Yes>. happening. 
Well, free BSD is awesome, so I wouldn't mind. I just kind of wish the wireless might be a little easier to use and manage mm -hmm. from KDE on FreeBSD. Well, we have our Wi-Fi managers getting ready to land in the port street probably in about a month. Yeah. The one we did for PCBSD and TrueOS. So that may make it easier for you. Th that's what I've been awesome. using. Uh, on. I've been using the one from PCBSD on my FreeBSD laptop for yeah. a while now because uh, <laughs> it's the only thing that works. That's right. Well, we've done a lot of work in the last two months. We've split all of our tools in a separate repo so we can put them into the porch tree as separate packages. So you don't have like this one mega package of everything. Ah, yes. So I'm I'm hopeful by about MeetBSD time, I'll start committing all those and you'll actually be able to say, I want the PCBSD wireless manager or whatever and pull that in, which will work in KDE for you. <laughs> so hopefully cool. that gets better. Thanks, Chris. No problem. So um, next question, man. What uh, what upcoming ZFS features are you excited about? Are you guys watching upstream, I suppose? Yes, uh, people are watching upstream. We're not really all huddled in a room, so I can't really say what everyone is doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of being excited about, I know a lot of the people in the community are excited about persistent L2 arc. Yep. There are also mm -hmm. a lot of people excited about ABD. Persistent L2 Arc was the one I suggested, by the way. I've been wanting that for a couple of years now. <laughs> Personally, the one that really excites me is ABD. As mm -hmm. when we, well, when Brian specific ported ZFS to Linux, he used the Linux kernel's virtual memory allocator. And the Linux kernel's virtual memory allocator is horribly crippled. You have a single global spin lock. You have a, no ability to deal with memory pressure or address space pressure on it. And that's okay on 64-bit, but on at least the address space pressure thing is okay on 64-bit, but it's not okay on 32-bit. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And every single time you do an allocation, it goes into a global linked list that's traversed every single time someone looks into proc VMstead, I believe, off the top of my head which just kills performance, particularly when I'm compiling because there's a wrapper in Gen 2 that will cause, in the tool chain, that will actually work there. Mm -hmm. And you can end up with an obscene amount of spin lock uh, spin, well, contention. It's an obscene amount of spin lock contention and just time spent in the kernel doing nothing, which is just really, really annoying. So I'm really looking forward to ABD. Yes, uh, you know, on FreeBSD we don't have that problem so much, but I'm also looking forward to ABD just to make the idea of using like eight megabyte uh, record size not require eight megabytes of contiguous memory uh, to do. Well, on FreeBSD you don't have a group of people maintaining the code that are opposed, philosophically opposed to kernel virtual memory allocations right. being used for production things aside from something that's not really that important like a kernel module being loaded here or there. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and I probably just offended a few people by <laughs> saying that, so uh, <laughs> you guys uh, they can come on next week and Yeah, they can come on next week and explain <laughs> their point of view. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the one that's... Uh, you know, just looking at the list of like the upcoming ZFS Dev Summit and some of the stuff coming up there, uh, the Scrub Resilver performance improvements uh, are something I'm really excited about. I've actually heard some people asked about that. 
in the community, specifically on IRC, but not as much as I've heard about the other two, right. which are Opus SNL Talk and ABD. That one, maybe it'd be number three in yeah. terms of just making Scrub performance better. Well, especially like uh, in the case of uh, Resilver on a mirror, just you know, being like, oh, this is a mirror, let's just do sequential uh, if it's more than this amount full or something, uh, I think would make a big difference. But uh, it looks like Sasso's got some more interesting ideas about optimizations for that and just, you know, remembering the fact that you're dealing with a spinning disk and you need to try to do things in linear order. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so it's a big help to sequentialize things hands down. Uh, although the one that's a uh, big one for me is the compressed arc, uh, you know, keeping the LZ Ford blocks compressed when they're in the arc and then just decompressing them as you use them that uh, George Wilson is doing. Yes. Yeah, that sounds neat. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, the biggest I one... I talk I, about theoretical improvements that actually excite me more than compressed L2 arc, but those are ones that haven't really been discussed that much yet. Well, we're yeah, going to we'll get, get to that in just a second. So <laughs> yep. That leads us into our next question. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> uh, so if you had uh, unlimited free time, uh, what features would you personally like to implement? <laughs> okay, so I actually was under the impression you just asked me out one feature, but in terms of features, okay, so the first feature probably would be somewhat surprising, as I'm going to say few support for a couple of reasons. One is that it makes debugging much, much easier. You don't mm-hmm. have to spin up a VM. At the moment, the way I'm debugging things is I have QMU booting Linux on the Pran 9 file system using the virtual I.O. transport. So it's essentially using a shared folder for the root file system. Mm-hmm. Then I wall things off there. There is a minor issue involving MMAP on that, which is a bit annoying. And quite frankly, if I could just boot up a fuse process, or to start a fuse process and do some tests on that. It, I just attach GDB. I don't have to worry so much about the VM boundary or anything like that. I could get, mm-hmm. it would just be much easier. So that's probably the number one feature I would implement if I had unlimited free time. And I guess another, some other features I'd like to implement if I have unlimited free time. And I actually might need to implement them for work at some point, which are some performance improvements. One, I actually heard about it. Uh, well, okay, I, I heard that Oracle did something with this, but it's called Zill Pipelining. So at the moment, if you have a synchronous operation being committed to Zill, anything else can't really, it, it all blocks waiting for that to finish before it can be coalesced into your next Zill commit. And there really is no reason for that. We could actually, well, well, the existing Zill commit is in progress. We could start the next one. We really just have to make sure that the next one doesn't end before the current one ends. Mm -hmm. But as long as we do that, we could actually just get much better performance from not having to block there. At least for sequential, not sequential, for synchronous operations, yeah, the especially because the Zill is supposed to be a device that can handle multiple operations like that. Yes. And so especially if we're going to like NVMEs where they can do, you know, 64 operations concurrently. Sure. Yes. So the way it's done now is that everything gets coalesced into the Zill commit. And then until that Zill commit finishes, you can't coalesce the next Zill commit, which is an annoying mm-hmm. 
source of contention. Then another source of contention that not many people have even heard of is doing asynchronous pulse server writes to uncast records. So this will actually block and become synchronous. It doesn't really matter if you don't have OSync enabled. If you mm-hmm. actually just write to a record that is not cast and it's a parser write, the kernel code will actually block and wait until it reads in the other part of that record and then continue, which is annoying. And mm-hmm. it's a performance improvement that I'd love to make at some point. Is that- Assuming that someone else doesn't beat me to it. I think... Sure. Uh, I forget what his name, Justin Justin Gibbs. Gibbs. Yes, he did that at Spectralogic in 2013. Yes, but but he uh, didn't get it upstreamed. Yeah, so this was, he did it after uh, Oracle closed up ZFS before OpenZFS and like Illumos really, it became obvious that that was going to be the thing. Mm -hmm. And so they modified giant chunks of ZFS to make the code easier for them to deal with. And so their patches don't apply cleanly to anything. And uh, mm. But yes, I remember that was when I first heard about ZFS was seeing a talk about that in 2013 at BSDCAN, or 2012 mm-hmm. even, 2012 at BSDCAN. Uh, and it's really sad that that work uh, didn't make it upstream. But I wonder if the they made a kind semi-related change for ZFS receive performance, uh, where it was doing the same thing of blocking until it read the, the required data to be able to write it and they just uh, kind of queued it up in the in a background thread so they could make the receive faster hmm. okay well those are features you talked about that you'd like to do but how about things that other people might be working on or you would like them to work on is there any other just really killer feature you'd like to see ZFS grow better documentation as okay. the communities for some to some extent are still leaning on the Oracle documentation so having people who volunteer who don't necessarily even need to know how to code work on improved documentation would be awesome. Mm-hmm. I, so do you have copies of my feature. books? <laughs> All right. No, I actually don't. But uh-huh. I, I meant something that was that's free online right. for people to use. Uh, the FreeBSD mm-hmm. handbook has a very uh, thorough section on the administrative side of ZFS. So everything from setting it up and dealing with failed disks and and all of that. And because it's, you know, the ZFS and ZPool commands, it's very agnostic to the operating system. But it would be nice to have uh, more of that and have an official version and, uh, you know. I'll see what I can do about making various wiggies linked to it then. Okay. I'll check it out. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to see improved? Encryption support would be nice. Ah, but yes. People are working on that. That one's yeah, I think awesome. It's actually to the point of being reviewed and is, yeah, is there's a patch feature completed. It may land here soon. Uh, yes. At BSD Can earlier this year, Matt Aaron's uh, put out a plea to the FreeBSD people to try to to review the crypto and and so on. And you know, he's like, "I'm not a cryptography expert, but you guys have a couple of those. Could you have them take a look at this?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be great. Looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, is there anything uh, anything you do to keep yourself motivated to work on open source? Do you have any hobbies maybe outside of open source? Well, this is actually a question I've been asking myself for eight years. I've been somewhat drained by that work project I mentioned at work that I can't really talk too much about mm-hmm. in detail. 
Now, there are a couple of answers for this. One is hacking on things that I want to hack on, which is the reason why I started, actually. Mm-hmm. The other thing is to try to get a good work-life balance. And I'm actually going to be taking my first proper vacation since joining Cluster HQ this Sunday. So that work-life balance thing is being corrected. So you know, those are two things that I'm doing to motivate myself. Now, I actually am mentoring or it's been a very long mentorship process, mostly because of, it was mostly my fault for that, but I, I'm entering a new Gen 2 developer who should be a full-fledged Gen 2 developer very soon. So that's also an, another great way to work on open source together with other people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sir. In terms of hobbies outside of open source, I, I like to help people uh, let me think of a few good examples. So recently at my Paris outreach, I donated like 15 hands of bananas to them. I got a great deal on them. But it, it helped to feed some people in the area who uh, don't have much income. Then uh, there's a Paris priest I know. He was having trouble contacting his family. He retired and they wouldn't give him. Basically, he, they got rid of his private line, so I got him a cell phone. I actually paid for it for a while. Then he had problems with his computer, so I built him a new one. It runs Gen 2 on ZFS. It has ECC RAM. (laughs) It uh, is a really tiny computer, though. It's one of those Minibox M350 chassis with, Mm -hmm. I think it was, uh, it's a server motherboard inside of it, but it's mini ITX. Then let's see what else. I've actually been talking to people on Reddit, giving them some advice on networking, which I'm not that well known for, but I do know a decent amount about networking, mostly out of necessity. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know things like that. I actually just yesterday gave someone in ZFS on Linux community, he's one of the users that hands out in IOC, a Nexus 5 that I had hanging around. I wasn't really able to make time to use it. It was meant for experiments, so I was like, if you can use it, you can have it. Sure. Alright, cool. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to mention before we uh, let oh, you Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah? Okay. Uh-oh. So, this is for all of the OEMs and CPU designers out there, like ARM, Intel, Every everyone knows who they are. Please, please, please make ECC a standard feature on all of your hardware. Yes. ECC has existed since, what, 1970? Mm-hmm. And it, we've been through, what, two dozen Moore's Law cycles. It, it, it costs next to nothing to have ECC on these things. So th- there's really, if you guys are going to make improvements elsewhere, making this one single change isn't going to cost much. Yeah. And you might as well. I, I take ECC over what a, a slightly older CAS. Mm-hmm. I, I just really, really would like to see ECC on things, especially since I know these machines are being deployed in places that you wouldn't expect. For instance, I heard about this one machine in a hospital that was infested with malware. It was running Windows XP, and of course, it was a P4, so there was no ECC memory and. When a machine is being used for something like monitoring someone's vitals, it's important that it works correctly. And we mm-hmm. need to eliminate such opportunities for failures. And the lack of ECC is a glaring hole in anything anyone does. 
to yeah, it's not, improve things. It's not really yeah. new technology. They, have well, to and, they just got to adopt it. Well, in particular, like I've seen plenty of server motherboards that will take ECC or not ECC RAM. So it wouldn't even, you know, building that feature into desktop motherboards and so on wouldn't actually require every user to buy ECC. It would just give them the option. And that'd be great. And I'd like to see more like Lenovo released their new P50 laptop where you can actually have ECC RAM in a laptop. I really hope that catches on. I actually purchased stock in Apple so that I could file a shareholder proposal <laughs> regarding <laughs> two job. things. One being ECC, another being ZFS. I had to hold it for a year, but mm -hmm. I think I can make the next shareholder meeting in terms of filing a proposal. As I got it last year, and the next shareholder meeting is, I think, February of next year. So there's that. And there, I really wish that people would particularly at places like Intel, they would stop thinking in terms of, let me save $1 per model, mm -hmm. which is really all it costs, because if it's already in the silicon, then all you need to do is add another IC for the memory. That way you have the extra 8 bits, and you can store the ECC data. But I recall at... When it's gone, I was talking to this engineer from Intel who was like, oh, no, we need to cut costs, and that's the first thing we'll cut. And I'm like, don't you care about making anything reliable? Yeah. No, so, no, no, that's a software problem. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why ZFS is so important in so many places, because, you know, if you have this important database and a single bit being flipped could be the difference between that user being an administrator and not... Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you want a file system that's going to make sure that the data it's sending you is actually correct, and that only is useful if the the machine's not going to corrupt it either. Well, in that in Intel's defense, that guy was one of their Chrome OS developers, so right. it was in the context of that. But it, it just costs so little, and it. it it's something that they can do. It, they, they're selling uh, core i7s that are essentially the Xeon E3s without ECC, which is ridiculous. They could just mm -hmm. eliminate that entire product line. So, here, I, I guess just in summary, please Intel, ARM, Apple, Renovo, just have ECC work on everything. Yep, makes sense. Okay, well, there's his plea. Somebody take care of that. <laughs> or we all have to start buying stock in these companies and force the issue. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, that works. That works. Well, hey, thank you so much, Richard. We appreciate you taking the time with us today. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Alan. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're welcome. And, of course, uh, we'll have to stay in touch. And as features start landing, you know, let us know. Make some noise about it. Okay, back from the interview. Hope you guys enjoyed that. We'll, of course, uh, follow up with Richard as uh, some new ZFS features start landing. We'll make some noise about the things he was working mm -hmm. on. But uh, we need to get into our news roundup. So before we do that really quick, first sponsor, or second sponsor this week is going to be iX Systems. Of course, website for that, ixsystems.com slash bsdnow, where you can go there right now, put in your email address, and get in touch with those folks. Let them know what you're looking to build. And better yet, let them know what you're actually looking to do with what you're going to build. Because once you give them the details, they'll be like, oh, okay, we can design a system based around some latest and greatest Intel processor. And, oh, you actually want less memory or more memory, or you want this type of disk for ARC or this type of disk for Zill, or maybe you don't need a Zill, your workload will, you know, won't make a difference. Yeah. So that's, that's the great thing about IX. They, they know all that. It's really, stuff. really handy to have people that actually 
are going to understand what you're trying to do with it and possibly actually know more than you do because then they can help you uh, <laughs> a lot. But even if not, you know, being able to have that high-level conversation with them where you're actually talking about the details uh, and mm-hmm. and their eyes aren't glazing over while you're doing it, right. um, <laughs> you know, and then they can make actual recommendations and be like, yes, uh, for that you want you know, a, a high-endurance SSD or you want a high-speed SSD or actually instead of SSDs, have you considered NVMe? Because then it's not mm-hmm. going to take up any slots. And it's like, or, you know, um, if you're going to put SSDs in these slots they're SATA SSDs and then they're going to go into the SAS and maybe that's a problem. So then you have to buy SAS SSDs and they're more expensive. But then we have this other chassis where we can put a couple of SATA ones in the back and they don't take up parts on your SAS controller. Sure. And yeah, they just, they have all the things. And so the really important thing is when you get in touch with them, you don't really want to tell them what server you want. You want to tell them what you want to do with the server and then see what they come up with. And if it's the same as what you wanted or if they actually come up with something better. That's right. That's right. So get in touch with them today. Talk to their wonderful sales engineers. And of course, tell them you heard about it here on BSD Now because they love hearing from our listeners. So uh, I know we'd appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's get into the news yes. roundup here. So what do we have? The ZFS Deadlock Directory of Death. That sounds really ominous, <laughs> yes. Alan. What, what's happening? Uh, so this, uh, this is a mailing list thread where users reports that when they try to install NPM, which is the Node.js package manager, their system would hang. It would actually deadlock uh, trying to deal with something in ZFS. As it turns out, this was also hitting the FreeBSD package building machines when they were trying to build the package of NPM. And so I have a PR here that has all the details about it. Uh, But it turns out the problem was a race condition in the way that renames are handled in the FreeBSD VFS layer, which is the thing above the file system that, uh, you know, it it deals with the basic operations you would do on a file system and then implement uh, calling into the specific implementations for each file system, right? So whether it's UFS or ZFS or FAT32 or whatever, um, the, the actual applications you write just make uh, VFS calls or, you know, the, the open and read and write calls they make will eventually make VFS calls, and then it does the translation into the file systems thing. Um, but the way FreeBSD's VFS did it was different than the way ZFS does it because the VFS on Solaris was different. Mm-hmm. Um, so this bug has existed since the original import of ZFS into FreeBSD, uh, but some other changes recently made it happen a lot more often. Before, it was like extremely sure. rare. Nobody would be able to actually track down exactly what the problem was. But then because of a bunch of other changes, the race condition was happening often enough that it was reproducible and someone could finally actually track it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's in the commit here from... Actually, it was from uh, Andre, who is... Uh, works with Richard. Uh, he says, the ZFS POSIX layer is originally written for the Solaris VFS, which is very different from FreeBSD's VFS. Most importantly, many things that the FreeBSD VFS manages on behalf of all file systems uh, are implemented specifically in the ZFS POSIX layer in a different way because they weren't handled by the Solaris VFS. Uh, thus, the ZPL code uh, contains... Uh, or ZPL contains code that is redundant on FreeBSD or duplicates functionality the VFS already has and in the worst cases badly interacts or interferes with the VFS. Uh, The most prominent problem is a deadlock uh, caused by a lock order reversal uh, for the vNode locks that may happen when you're doing a ZFS rename and a lookup at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, because um, the deadlock is a result of ZFS rename not observing the vNode locking contract expected by VFS. And so it was uh, taking a lock inside of itself when it was supposed to have done at the higher layer or something, and that was causing uh, 
locks, two locks to be taken, and they're both waiting for the other one to release, and so neither of them is ever going to release, and the system would just stop moving forward at that point. Anyway, uh, the fix is finally in. Uh, it's been tested and uh, pushed into FreeBSD 10 and 11 stable branch. So when FreeBSD 11.0 ships, it will uh, have this permanent fix in it. And it's one of the things that held it up a little yeah. bit. Uh, and uh, it's also available in 10 stable, although the issue doesn't happen very often on 10 stable because it didn't have uh, the other changes that caused it. Uh, but anyway, it's all fixed now, and you can build Node.js without hanging your machine now. Oh, good. Good. I'm surprised. That one of the victims, though, was uh, the support for mixed case sensitivity files. Systems, which didn't which actually work all the way anyway. Didn't work with anyway. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> no big loss. And then the one of the, it also temporarily broke .zfs, the, the, the hidden directory, but that was fixed uh, and is merged as well. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised that you didn't run into that one, Chris. Because no, you build not, all the packages, right? Anyway, we do build all the packages, and I've never seen NPM. I think you might have just missed the system. one. Well, it wouldn't panic; it would just kind of stop doing things. Mm -mm. Uh, Can't say we ever ran into mm -hmm. it. Maybe we. Just, Maybe you just missed the window uh, of when that was a problem. We, we've run all of our systems on head now for a while, and it's possible we did miss the window. Yeah. But I upgrade them every three, four months. Yeah. So I think it was only about two months that it was a potential problem. Okay. Well, good. Shoo. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have to make any noise about that one. <laughs> well, very cool. I'm glad that it all has made it in and merged, and uh, we'll need to upgrade our builders here soon, make sure we do have the fix in case mm -hmm. any of them are still straggling. So let's see here. So next up, we have a new BSD magazine has come out. So it looks like we got a whole slew of new articles here. I think you wrote the news yes. for this one. Uh, so so what, what new things In the uh, July issue uh, that came out, they have uh, an implementation of the in-memory cache for the Beast architecture, which is that um, a different version of that multi-headed ZFS thing we talked about. Uh, this one's slightly more complicated and has some caching and stuff. Uh, it's very cool. Uh, and so they have an article about uh, doing an in-memory cache on each of the heads. Uh, there's uh, a Docker cleanup document to here. They have uh, part two of their getting started with FreeNAS guide. Uh, solving some problems with running MySQL 5.7 on FreeBSD. Uh, and uh, let's start at the very beginning with open source. Of course. Uh, and then, actually, we have the second issue that's actually out already. We've been a little behind on this mm -hmm. one because the schedule's been all over the place. Uh, but the August issue is uh, got two big articles about Minix. Uh, so if you were interested in that, especially if you saw our interview with Andrew Tannenbaum, uh, but yes, they have Minix 3, the free and open source operating system for high reliability, flexibility, and security. And then Minix, a class-based operating system. Uh, then they actually have some more Docker stuff and how to build a Docker Swarm cluster with just one machine. Uh, part 3 of the FreeNAS Getting Started Guide. Uh, and then actually a follow-up to that Beast in-memory uh, cache thing. A mm -hmm. After writing about it, it turns out the author... Uh, while thinking about it, came up with an even better way. So now he has oh, nice. a, a follow-up article about optimizing that in-memory cache to make it even more performant. Hmm. And then there's also a, uh, a article here about fixing failed ports on hardened and uh, LibreBSD. Hmm. Okay. Very nice. Very yes. nice. Cool. And actually, I was uh, separately the author of the this building that beast architecture thing was asking some questions in the freebsd user group on facebook specifically about uh does anybody have a test lab with the type of hardware required to actually mm -hmm. try some of this stuff that he's been building or designing uh sure. and uh 
sadly, it's actually not something that I have directly because um, I don't have all my disks are in machines rather than in a separate sled that I could multipath into two different machines. Uh, and even the FreeBSD test cluster doesn't actually have something quite like that. Uh, but in talking to him, I think I've convinced him to come to an interview and actually talk to us more right, about it. We'll take yes, it. and and maybe that will uh, cause someone who does have access to such hardware to uh, reach out and be able to get uh, some of the stuff tested. Yeah, I would imagine one of our listeners knows of a system somewhere that can mm-hmm. help them. Okay, so next up, of course, uh, we've been featuring a few stories and walkthroughs recently about using UEFI to do dual boots with BSD and, uh, and Windows, and now it's Dragonfly BSD's turn. So we have a post over to the Dragonfly mailing list that looks like Dave McFarlane wrote, telling us about the specific steps he took to get UEFI installed and get bootstrapped on his system. Now, if, if you've done any of the free BSD manual UEFI installs, um, you're going to see that the process looks very similar. You'll end up running uh, their equivalent of Gpart, the GPT command, to create partitions, you install disk files, and eventually when it's all said and done, you'll end up copying a boot1.efi file into the uh, FAT32 EFI partition. Mm -hmm. So again, very similar stuff, but good. But he also uh, called out a few things that were a little tricky, ran into an issue with a no Etsy FS tab being created, which ended up being a problem. So uh, helpfully, he included what his system needed so he can boot a hammer FS properly from UEFI. So, of course, uh, this is a good first start. I think somebody should probably document this for Dragonfly. I expect this to become more commonplace, especially if people are running on their laptops. I mean, a lot of times they come pre-installed yep. Windows and UEFI all out of box. So this is becoming pretty uh, standard practice. So good good to see more of this showing up. And, of course, I encourage you to try it if you've not done a UEFI a dual boot install before. It just kind of works. It's kind of nice. So mm-hmm. I, I know I do that on all my systems here now. I don't use BIOS anymore. Okay, so moving on. Mm-hmm. So Netflix and Phil. What is Netflix? We haven't talked about Netflix in a while. Yes. So what do they got going on? So this, uh, they actually just have on their tech blog an article explaining how they actually fill their FreeBSD content uh, Open Connect appliances uh, with the videos that you're going to watch. Sure. Uh, so this one just basically walks through uh, all the technical details uh, that I know a lot of our listeners would be interested in. So first they get the content from the studios and so on, uh, right? They get the master copy of the movie or the TV show. Then they have to transcode that and make the various different bit rates that they're going to serve, right? They're sure. low quality for your phone and, and the medium quality for people with poor internet connections and then the high quality and then they're super HD for people whose ISPs have a Netflix appliance. Uh, and then they have to package up all the subtitles because now that uh, Netflix is available in 190 countries, in some of those countries you're going to want subtitles to the native language, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then those finished files get pushed up into Amazon's S3 storage service. Uh, now, if every one of their OCA boxes downloaded from S3, it would, it would cost a lot of money. So they don't sure. do that. This is a... Uh, we deploy the majority of our updates proactively during the con- uh, configured fill window. So there's basically a certain time at night when the Netflix is less busy where a portion of their boxes will actually stop serving content and start filling up with the new stuff that's coming out this week. Uh, so an important difference between our Open Connect CDN and other commercial CDNs is the concept of proactive caching. Right? Mm-hmm. Normally the way a CDN works, like the one we have at Scale Engine, is when somebody you know, first visits the PCBSD website, uh, it pulls a copy of that, 
uh, into our cache from the original PCBSD web server and then keeps it there and serves it to people. Uh, we actually do the proactive thing as well for the PCBSD package repo. So instead of pulling the file the first time somebody tries to download the package from a, you know, the first time someone in Europe tries to download uh, Firefox, we don't we don't actually do it then us first. uh instead yeah. we actually push the entire package repo out ahead of time so that when you show up it's already there uh so they say because we can predict with high accuracy what members will watch uh and at what time of day they will watch it we can make use of the non-peak bandwidth uh to download most of the content updates to the oca appliances in, uh, in our networks during the configured time windows when they're not going to be that busy. Uh, they say by reducing disk reads, which is reading videos off there to send to users, uh, while performing disk writes, which is adding the new videos onto the hard drives, uh, they're able to optimize their disk efficiency by avoiding read-write contention. This is actually something ZFS does as well. Uh, sure. If you're reading and writing at the same time, it really slows down both. So what ZFS does is accumulates all the writes in memory for usually up to five seconds, or but you can adjust that or until the memory gets full. Then it stops reading, does all the writes really quick, and then goes back to just reading. Uh, instead of interleaving them every couple of seconds, or that mm -hmm. Netflix does this where they'll serve all day, and then there'll be like a one or two hour period in the middle of the night when the box isn't busy, where it's just going to be downloading as fast as it can to, to fill up those hard drives. Sure. Uh, so the other interesting thing is their uh, OCA appliances may actually contain more than one copy of the same video. Hmm. Because they uh, treat each disk completely separately in their appliances instead of like rating them together, uh, this way if one disk dies, they just leave the dead, leave it there dead and don't use it. Um, but it means that they can actually get more bandwidth uh, from the disk if they just store, you know, if a, if a movie's going to be really popular or a TV show, right, the new episode of their new show is out, they'll put it on multiple disks, complete copies of it. And then mm -hmm. that way when they go to read it, they can have different users reading from different disks and getting more uh, bandwidth that way. Uh, Normally, you'd have like a file system cache that would obviate the need to have the same blocks stored on multiple disks in order to have enough bandwidth to read it all. But they have, you know, thousands of users reading off each machine, and only I think most of their appliances only have like 32 or 64 gigs of RAM. Uh, sure. And yeah. then like you know, 36 eight terabyte hard drives <laughs> or something like that. And I'm surprised that little memory. Heck, my desktop has that much memory. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, they don't need the memory. And basically, sure. even if they put a terabyte of memory in it, they still wouldn't get good cache hit ratio because be yeah. there's so much content. And everybody's, you know, everybody might be watching the same show, but they're all watching it 10 seconds apart. And mm -hmm. so they're not actually going to get any cache hits. Uh, so they just avoid that and put multiple copies on different disks uh, so that when they need to read it, they have that much more disk bandwidth available. Sure. So then the OCAs communicate at regular intervals with their control plane servers, which run on Amazon, uh, and they request, among other things, a manifest of what files should be on the appliance, uh, which is basically a list of the different titles. Uh, and then they figure out what's different between what they have and what they should have, and then they try to find a place to get it from. Uh, so the OCA will send a request during its configured fill window that includes a list of all the new or updated titles that it wants to get, that it needs. Mm -hmm. uh, the response from the control plane in AWS is a ranked list of potential download locations or fill sources for each title. You know, it would be inefficient and in terms of both time and cost uh, to distribute 
the titles directly out of S3 to every one of these machines. So instead, uh, you know, usually they'll install a whole bunch of these together. And so if the machine two, two uh, notches down the rack from you has a copy already, it's obviously much cheaper to get a copy from them than it is to pull it across the internet from another country. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, when they ask for stuff, they have this whole algorithm described in the article of actually finding the machine that is going to be the least expensive to pull a copy of the video from. And they consider all kinds of different things like BGP paths, attributes, and physical location, mm-hmm. like latitude and longitude, uh, whether the machine's a fill master or not, uh, you know, filling escalation policies. is like, how badly do I need this? If it's not that badly, maybe I can get it from over there. But if it's really, really badly, I have to go all the way over here and, and make sure I get it. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, how many hops away to get to the other thing? Uh, you know, whether... Sounds like an IPFS, uh, a more, much more advanced version of like an IPFS, yeah. I guess. Like, I'll get these bits from upstream or no way. I found a local copy of it. Yeah. So the, here in the data center. It's pulled from the, there. There's the peer fill where we'll get it from people nearby in the same cabinet or subnet. Uh, then the tier fill where it'll go up to a, a higher level server, like the, the next closest data center. And then the mm-hmm. cache fill where it actually download it directly from S3 and so on. But they describe it all in great detail and it's quite interesting to see how that works. Cool. Uh, and then they say, now that Netflix operates in 190 countries and we have thousands of these appliances embedded in many ISP networks around the world, uh, we are even more obsessed with making sure that our OCAs get the latest content as quickly as possible while continuing to minimize bandwidth costs to our ISP partners. Because that's the other thing is, you know, the ISPs um, where you're going to put these boxes, most of the the big constraint they have is they only have so much bandwidth for downloading and they want most of that to go to the users they don't want the netflix boxes that are specifically inside the isp to prevent the isp from having to have all the users go out to the internet to download the video uh sucking up all the bandwidth at a time when it's not you know when a user when there's already contention by the users so Mm -hmm. sometimes those fill windows are awfully small it's like these only between these hours could we really want netflix to be slurping down data um, you know, while everybody's asleep in, in our time zone. Um, but we also want the Netflix appliances to have as many of the videos as possible to save that much more traffic from the users from having to go out across yeah. the network. And uh, optimizing that is is their biggest uh, concern right now. Oh, that's cool. But yeah, so there's lots of... Really, really detailed. Mm-hmm. There's lots of diagrams and stuff. It's quite interesting. Okay. Well, definitely check that out if you're interested to see how Netflix runs. And, of course, they're doing all this on FreeBSD. We can't neglect to mention that. Okay, we got a couple beastie bits to bring to you. We got feedback and questions. But before we hop into those, let's mention our last sponsor this week, which is going to be Tarsnap. Mm-hmm. Of course, the website for that is tarsnap.com slash bsdnow. You want to go there and get signed up right now, start doing your backups. I mean, it's good to do backups, period, but if you're not doing them the Tarsnap way, I can almost guarantee they're not going to be encrypted properly. Tarsnap's the only way that we've seen anyway that you can fully do a backup offsite. It can go in the cloud, and you can really be sure that nobody can get access to your data that you don't want to. In other words, if you don't give them the key, they don't read it. Yep. And that's what makes Tarsnap so nice. Right now, 
today's day and age, once it goes in the cloud, I mean, who knows what systems it's on? What cold storage did it end up yes. in, right? There's yeah. always copies yeah. of those. Amazon's guaranteed they're not going to lose the data, so they must be keeping multiple copies. So even if I delete it, they probably still have some copies somewhere. So That's you right. have to encrypt right. it so that the when you destroy the key, you know that nobody can ever get it back. Fine. That's right. So Tarsnap makes that possible. And, you know, they don't just tell you that and make yes. big so promises. They let you, you can tell. If you go to the code. download page for Tarsnap, it says, At the present time, pre-built binaries are not available for Tarsnap. It must be compiled from source code. Some operating systems include Tarsnap packages, like the FreeBSD, Tarsnap port, or NetBSD one, and, and so on. And there's, I think, almost every distro has a Tarsnap package now. Sure. But it specifically says here, Tarsnap Backup Inc. does not examine or verify third-party software. Whether you use these ports or packages or compile manually depends on your level of paranoia and or your ability to read the packaging files to ensure there are no malicious changes. Mm. If you wish to compile it manually, you should download the source toggle from their website there and then verify the SHA-256 hash, which is listed below, and then follow the instructions on their website on how to compile Tarsnap. Yeah. How many other backup solutions are going to give you that? And be like, yeah, why don't you compile it yourself just to be sure that we haven't snuck something in a rogue employee here. Yep. random uh, NSA paid it. And it's like, you know, me have put something in there. You know? if, if you're paying for a backup service, how often do they have a link to their GitHub repo where you can read all of the source code uh, and make sure that it's exactly what it says it is? Yeah. You don't see that anywhere. So again, guys, Tarsnap should be the way to go. So go ahead and get signed up today. And of course, if you talk to Colin or anybody over at Tarsnap, tell them, hey, you heard about it here on BSD Now because um, I mean, we've been using it for a while and definitely recommend it. Okay, so Beastie Bits. So we have Michael W. Lucas up first. It looks like he's revealed the new cover for his Pam Mastery book. <laughs> a very a very good cover. I assume you're showing that yes. off there, Alan. <laughs> so that's uh, that famous painting. I don't remember what it was called. But uh, it's... Yeah. Uh, you know, of the farmer and his Yeah, wife. so this is uh, Beastie good. with his pitchfork, uh, trident, and uh, Tux standing out on the lawn in front of the little farmhouse. And it's Pam Mastery. Very nice, very nice. Well, it looks good, Michael. We'll have to. I need to get a copy of that. That looks yep. good. Uh, he says he's gotten some feedback from uh, Dagger Lee Sporgrave or Des, the author of Open Pam, and uh, he's just incorporating that feedback into the manuscript. Once it's done, it'll be off to copy editing, and then uh, you'll be able to buy your book. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, next up we have a Liberty BSD 5.9 is out. We have a link to their download page, but they are requesting some mirrors. Mm -hmm. So if uh, that's something you can offer as a service to them, let them know. So they have a couple other places you can download from. Mm -hmm. And then what's this last one about Unix for Poets? Yes. Stanford University? Yes, this is uh, a, an updated version of an, an old, old uh, Unix paper. And uh, yes, this is Unix for Poets in 2013. And it basically covers some very basic bits of Unix, but for people that aren't necessarily familiar with computers very much. Mm -hmm. So it says, text is available like never before. you got the web, dictionaries, uh, corpuses, emails, billions and billions of words, but what can you do with it all? So they actually start going through some of the basic command line stuff, like counting the number of words in a file, sorting a list of words in various ways, uh, extracting useful information from a dictionary, and so on. So they show you how to use things like grep, sort, unique, tr, wc, sed, cat, echo, you know, join, shuffle, reverse, tail, head, paste, cut, etc. Yeah. These long pipelines make me happy yes. coming from a big shell scripting background. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
So it's very uh, nice. but it actually does it all in a way that it's you know it's just based on working with text files and so on, and it it really just shows you what you can do with basic unit command line stuff and some text files, uh, and it really makes me think of that. Uh, was it the Unicage development model or whatever that Tayashi uh, Goto uh, gave presentation about at BSD Can a couple of years ago? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, the the point of sales cash register machine at the at the store in Japan that's written in shell script because you have your little um, barcode reader and it's actually connected mm-hmm. over USB and pretends to be a keyboard. So when you scan it, it just types in the the, the barcode number that fetches it out of the database and all get it's like. You know, we can what we can do in shell script in a couple of minutes would take twenty minutes with uh, Hadoop in a big data cluster. It's like sometimes sure. the shell is still the best way to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Very nice. But yeah, very there's nice. a lot of different uh, simple exercises and a good way to get started with the very basics of the shell. And uh, once you do that and understand some of the, you know, find the fifty most common words uh, in this giant text file that's all the the articles from the New York Times. Uh, once you've done a couple of those things, you'll be like, oh, I now understand what makes Unix so powerful. Everything's a file, and, and you can just pipe these commands together and make really interesting things. Hmm. Okay. Well, cool. It's time. We're going to hop over to questions and feedback from hmm. you guys out in the audience. So first up, we have an um, email that was passed along here from Chuck talking about something uh, Ingo Suarez had mentioned on the OpenBSD mailing list. So you want to read this one yeah. down? I'll do the next uh, one. So Ingo wrote and says, Hi, from time to time, people ask how they can help the OpenBSD development if they're new to that task and not necessarily a programmer or whatever. He says, right now, there's a useful opportunity. Uh, you want to take the code in the mandoc, which is under user source, uh, user.bin slash mandoc, uh, and grep for everything that has percent %s. So when you do uh, printf, mm. You put percent %s tokens in your string, and then those get replaced with a, the value of a variable later on that's a string. But he wants to audit all instances that you find and figure whether or not uh, they can be reached where the variable you pass uh, is actually going to be null. Um, if you find one where the pointer could be null, uh, construct an input file and a command line, for example, mandoc minus t lint foo.mdoc, mm-hmm. or make what is minus t foo.mandoc, uh, with the... Uh, with an attached file and demonstrate that man, apropos, mandoc, and make what is actually print null and send that report to Ingo and then he'll uh, work on fixing it. Uh, hmm. It says the task is not very difficult but requires considerable time. He would guess it would uh, need up to two days to do a full audit of everything even though he knows the code very well. Uh, he says he has a huge backlog of patches to check and a huge backlog of tricky programming tasks to tackle. Uh, but once someone finds these issues for him, he can fix them quite trivially and get done much quicker. Uh, nice. He said uh, that way he can focus on the less easy tasks and leave the easy stuff mm-hmm. for newcomers. Uh, I always feel that way when I'm fixing something easy in FreeBSD. It's like I, I should just find someone and get them to do it. I know it'll take them longer than it'll take me, but they'll learn something out of it and it leaves yeah. me to work on other things. Oh, and they might it might encourage them to exactly. do that. Exactly. This is how you make new committers. Yeah, but if you're an open BSC fan and have been looking for a way maybe to give back, but you're like, oh I'm not a C programmer, this or that, here's a perfect opportunity. Yep. So jump on this. See if you can uh, help out. Mm-hmm. And then he says uh, Okay. Yeah. He says yeah. beside this this will improve uh, the code your code reading and auditing skills. Uh, since you know that's how I learned most of the C I ever did was actually just reading other code and figuring out what mm-hmm. it does. Uh, and it, it definitely does help. 
Uh, if you find a few things, you could even try to tackle other parts of the tree that are more difficult. Uh, he says, in Mandoc, there's almost uh, certainly some instances where, until now, I wasn't aware that printf percent as null is problematic. All right. All right. <laughs> cool. Hmm. Okay. Well, next up we have, let's see here. Oscar. Uh, Med writes in. Oh. He says, uh, Hell, hey there. First of all, I want to thank you guys for doing such an awesome show. Even though I'm pretty new to Unix and Linux, I'm learning quite a lot every episode. I'm actually interested in seeing more from FreeNAS and PFSense. I have to say I really like the Beehive episode. found it very interesting. Look forward to more about FreeNAS and PFSense. Anyway, keep it coming. Well, I guess we kind of just cover it based on what's in the news that week. Yeah, so we've there's had articles about... I mean, we've interviewed all those yeah. folks. Uh, and then FreeNAS was featured in both the BSD magazine articles for the last two mm -hmm. months. Uh, but all that was getting started stuff, and I'm guessing he's already past that point. Um, sure, sure. But yeah, if you have specific questions, we can try to answer them. And uh, yes, mm -hmm. we'll always try to cover more. And, you know, oh. I really don't have the time. But if I did, it would be really nice for someone to make the FreeNAS slash PFSense equivalent for Beehive. Something like Proxmox, mm -hmm. but based on FreeBSD and Beehive. That would be very cool. That would be very cool. So, of course, if you see articles or see other blog posts that are neat, people talking about FreeNAS, PFSense, or heck, you see something cool in the forums where they're talking about it, send that over to make so we can make sure we get it in a future episode so everyone can benefit <laughs> from hearing about it. Okay, so next up we have Alex who asks, hey, I've seen that there's a couple attempts at porting LaunchD to FreeBSD. Since CDDL code is already being used for ZFS, has anyone considered porting SMF to FreeBSD? I don't know if anyone's actively trying I don't it. know that it would actually port very well because it it's very, you know, dependent on the Solaris kernel and the FreeBSD kernel is not anything mm -hmm. like that. Uh, it'd be really nice to have a good fault management framework, uh, whether that's SMF or something else, I don't know. Uh, but I do know we are continuing to steal things from Solaris. I know uh, sure. John Baldwin's been playing with, uh, he's got MDB doing the, the Solaris debugger working on FreeBSD for mm -hmm. some very basic things. Um, and I'm sure a bunch of people that work with ZFS and uh, are familiar with MDB and know, you know, there's lots of existing kind of like uh, recipes for doing stuff with uh, MDB and ZFS. That'll be handy. Uh, but it'd be worth somebody looking at. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I guess it just depends on interest. If somebody sees mm -hmm. that as a need and decides to support over, great. But like Alan said, it might be too Solaris specific and tied in. Might need quite a bit of rewriting to make it work. Yep. So maybe not the best solution. I don't know. We'll see what happens. I know uh, like the relaunch D guy talked about it at BSD Can and why he chose not to use that and, and whatnot. But we'll see what the community comes up with in the next couple of years. Yep. Okay, so last up we have Raymond who asks, uh, Hello, Alan and Chris. Earlier this week it was announced that the Pi 3 would be able to boot off of USB and network. My question is, are there or will there be any PCBSD, FreeNAS, or PFSense ports in the works so we can boot from a flash drive? So I, I can't speak for maybe PFSense. I don't think FreeNAS at the moment is targeting ARM no. because that uh, so doesn't make a lot of sense. PFSense has their own ARM device coming out. So it is ported to ARM, although mm -hmm. theirs is not the Pi 3. I think what they're using is closer to a Pi 2, but except for it has real network interfaces. Uh, sure, sure. I, like, I don't think that PFSense makes that much sense on a Raspberry Pi because Raspberry Pi is really not networking focused. Uh, mm -hmm. But, yeah. Um, 
I'm, I'm considering doing a true. Uh, I've kept my eye on the pie for a while, and I've just been kind of waiting for it to hit this sweet spot where I feel like it's performant enough that you could boot up a lightweight desktop like Lumina and still be able to yeah, email but then surf. But. It wouldn't have ZFS, and then would it really be TrueOS anymore? <laughs> I know, right? That's the kicker, and it's the it's really at this point. What I'm waiting for the Pi or some equivalent ARM board to have is USB 3 would be great. So we could plug like an external SSD in and then a little more RAM. Yep. Really? I mean, if you can give me those two things and or maybe you have an ARM board you want to suggest. Well, I think what you something more along the lines of like the Chrome book or something where it's actually sure. an, a laptop rather than a tiny dev board, uh, then something like TrueOS might make more sense. Uh, well, in the meantime, specifically, if you want to run stuff on the Raspberry Pi 2 and 3 and so on, uh, check out rasbsd.org, uh, which is Brad's product, project to try to make that a little smoother and easier. True. Well, I think the laptop's neat, but I still think there's a case for having like a little mini desktop type thing you can buy for under 100 bucks. Yes. Yeah. Um, pair, pair it with an external drive and boom, you have ZFS and you have a little mini desktop to do email and and right, so uh, I can give my grandma, for example, for cheap. <laughs> you know, George W. Neal was talking about having a, a pie top uh, instead mm-hmm. of a laptop, which would be like, you know, a touchscreen connected to a Raspberry Pi or something. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think, again, I, I'm kind of waiting for just an arm board that hits that kind of sweet spot where I'm like, okay, we'll roll on image. But at the moment, I don't think it's quite there yet. Again, yeah. being able to use ZFS on it still would be killer for me. Oh, oh, let's see here. Our producer is now saying that Odroid has USB 3 and gigabit. Ether. Okay. I'll have to take a look at that. I don't know. Does FreeBSD run on that yet? I think so. Have you heard? You think so? Okay. Well, maybe I'll have to take a look at that. You know what that costs, JT, off the top of your head? You know. see if he hears me. I, know I, I have the, the Jetson TK1, which has some uh, interesting stuff, too. Oh, he says it's an 8-core ARM processor. He says it uses the same processor. It's about 75 bucks. That's actually not bad. That's mm-hmm. kind of a sweet spot, I suppose. It's still under 100 Well, I may have to go pick up one of those in the next couple of weeks and do some tinkering. And uh, if it looks like it can run Lumina and run some of our lighter weight utilities, then maybe we'll roll a version of TrueOS for it. But that's always been kind of – that's part of the idea of doing the renaming is too now. We can have TrueOS embedded or TrueOS ARM yeah. or something and, and offer that as an image up on the website. So anyway. I'll take a look in it. But, yeah, it's something I'm interested in on the Truro side. Freenas, probably not ever, I don't think. That's not really what they target. Yep. But PFSense, yeah, who knows? We'll see. Okay, well, it's time to close out the show, folks. So, again, thanks for everyone being here this week. We appreciate you either watching or listening. I love, I know a lot of our folks uh, listen in the car on the podcast, yep. so we appreciate that. Of course, uh, send any questions or comments if you have any show ideas, topics, or you know somebody we need to interview. Heck, if you're just reading Reddit and, oh, hey, there's a story about something or a blog post, send that over. Yep. We live for that kind of stuff because me and Alan can't possibly together, even with our producer, JT, we can't find everything yep. on our own. So we really appreciate uh, the folks who have been sending stuff in like that. We uh, we scour all that and turn it into what becomes the show every week. <laughs> so again, send that to feedback at bscnow.tv um, and only send it there. Don't send it elsewhere. We may not respond right away because we do get a fair amount of email, but we try and make sure it gets worked into the show <laughs> or into a feedback question segment in the future episode. So again, thanks, and we'll look forward to talking to you at the same time next week. Mm-hmm.